The future of work and the future for workers is changing. From new technologies and talent strategies to the management of tomorrow's workforce. Tap in to Manpower Group Talent Solutions' 60 years of expertise and join us for the Transform Talent podcast, your guide to talent market trends, new technologies, and winning talent solutions. Hi, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Transform Talent podcast. This is Roberta Cucchiaro and Dominika Gausa. June is known as Pride Month when individuals and organizations come together to celebrate the LGBTQ communities and champion inclusion at work and in society. The war for talent is intensifying and embracing workforce diversity and inclusion is more than just the right thing to do. Plus, it keeps you ahead of the competition. But while most organizations focus their efforts on their full-time employees, they also need to be able to tap into the diverse contingent talent pool. And that's something that unfortunately hasn't been a priority for organizations. So in today's episodes, we will talk about diversity and inclusion in the contingent workforce, as supplier classification is no longer enough when it comes to satisfying DE&I objectives. To discuss this, we have invited Consciously and Bias, an expert in transformation and tackling bias in the workplace, as well as Tapfin, who have been partnering with bringing and measuring diversity in contingent workforce programs. So welcome to Ashish Kushal, founder of Consciously Unbiased, and Jennifer Torney, our North American VP for Client Engagement at Tuffin. Hi, how are you guys? Good, how are you? Thank Good. you for having us. Thanks nice. for having us. Cool. So we'll start with a question to both of you. So I want to I want you to define the D, the E, and the I in D, E, and I, and what each of these really mean in the workplace. Jen, do you want to start? I knew you'd say that. So, so the easy one is, so it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can define all of those terms, but, you know, at a, at a high level, you know, diversity is exactly what it sounds like having diversity in your workforce as we're talking about within the lens of, of workforce management. Equity is being treated fairly, hiring fairly and equally. And then inclusion, truly creating in, inclusive environments where everyone from all of that, those diversity categories feel as though they are being treated fairly, can be themselves, can be self-expressed, can, can operate equally uh, amongst all of their peers and colleagues. What did I miss, Ash? I think it was great, actually. I, I, I can't believe <laughs> I'm following you on this. <laughs> I always say diversity is when your organization has so many different people in the culture that you stop noticing because it feels natural. And then I say inclusion yeah. is when diverse people feel empowered to share their own input. But true belonging to me is when diverse people are not only encouraged to share, but their voices are also celebrated for its unique perspective and acted upon. And I think the acted upon is a very big piece of this. And then the equity piece comes into play when we look at policies and opportunities. Are the marginalized groups given the same pathways to advancement, access to sponsorship, and the ability to influence decision-making process as, as everyone else does? And so I think that's a key part is that I always say, like, look, it's great if you hire diverse candidates, but if you can't hold on to them because they don't feel like they belong, then you're kind of just spinning your wheels. And so I think yeah. it's all, yeah. all together. And before we uh, deep dive into you know that other topics, I would like to hear some background stories. So, Ashish, what led you to found consciously unbiased, and you know what does it mean to be consciously unbiased? So, I'll give you the background. So, Higher Talent is an organization I've been running for about twenty years, and 
when I built that company, I wanted to make sure we had diversity of thought. So I hired people intentionally from different socioeconomic, cultural, religious, sexual orientation backgrounds. And as a net result of it, people still relate to who they relate to. And so we organically created a, a very large, diverse talent pool. And then about two and a half years ago, I was working on a Sunday and I was thinking, you know, all these clients are asking me to hire diverse talent, both from a contingent labor and even a full-time side, because their senior managements were pushing these initiatives, putting pressure on HR, procurement, the MSPs, the staffing firms to provide that talent. But the ultimate decision maker who's the hiring manager wasn't necessarily buying into the process. And so I started wondering, why is that? And so I took a step back and said, I started thinking about society and we're so polarized where the left and the right speak past each other and everyone feels like a victim. So I'm like, that's what we've been common. We're all victims. So let's start there because a commonality actually brings us familiarity and understanding, right? And so it wasn't a bad thing that we all felt this way, right? Because I think things are changing so quickly right now. And so then I started thinking about training. We spend about $8 billion on training in corporate America on diversity and inclusion training. And a lot of it, it's not resonating because in our efforts to be inclusive, we've made training generic, right? And ultimately for you to impact the hiring manager's decision-making process, you have to connect the mind and the heart and it affects them or somebody they love, and then they're going to make it a personal initiative. And so then, and I always felt like you're forced to go to this training because your manager uh, makes you go, which is almost like your parents telling you to go and you're not going to really pay mm -hmm. attention until your friends start doing the yeah. same things. Right. And so, and so, and then if you did pay attention, cause you are actually interested in this, a lot of it was stemmed in guilt. And I think guilt is one strategy to motivate people, but I don't think the majority of us respond to that. Right. And so, mm -hmm. I was like, let's reframe the argument. Let's say bias, not all, let's say biases are based on life experiences, how you grew up, your family values, your community. And part of it, it's about survival. So let's own it. Let's be proud about it. And now it's just a matter of how you apply it. And then if I teach you a new bias in training session, you don't feel bad about it. You actually say, you know, I'm going to actively apply this bias in the right situations. And that's where consciously and bias was born. And then Amy and I, Amy, um, Amy Doyle from Tapton, I had gone on to see her, to see her shortly after that and we spent about eight hours brainstorming different ideas and how to automate things in the industry things around diversity and inclusion and she left me with some homework to do so i went back and did some research and then i was walking and it just popped in my mind you know we could build a solution that's scalable that i would say phase one of of diversity and inclusion really happened in the 60s when the government set sort set forth policies around equaling the playing field for minorities in business, right? And so that's where diversity spend came from. But now we're 30 years later, and uh, I think it's important that we take it to the next level and go down to the granular level. And so we came up with a solution where literally it was over text message, and like two days later, she set up a call with Jen and Bill Peters and um, a bunch of other people, Dave McGonigal, and said, all right, let's do this. And the idea was to build a true MSP solution where you had diversity spend, diversity hiring, and education of the managers, and education of the suppliers to really push diversity and move the needle in a meaningful way. And it was also tied to making sure that we had ROI and diversity because I think companies are in the business of making money. And so you, doing the right thing is one component of it, but it also has to show you that there's some strategic advantage. And I think we were a little bit ahead of the curve because I think society's kind of moved there at this point and showed us that this is the right, way, right path forward. Yeah. I, and I, every time I hear the story, it kind of gives me chills. I'm not kidding <laughs> because I just think it's really neat. And I think for the 12 years that I've worked here at Tapfin, you know, there's a lot of value in at minimum supporting the diversity community to be able to drive more diversity spend within your program. And so we've always mentored and supported diverse suppliers. You know, we've taken it that step further so we can still provide diverse spend capture, but also really support it such that 
you know, you can grow that area. But that was literally all we were able to and sort of focused on doing because for so many years, that was the contingent labor focus. That was all that we could impact. So when this happened, it was like this radical shift and the market was so ready. And Ash, I remember when we went to CWS in 2019, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think you had already, you know, launched the brand, but we had come in at 2019 together and it was the conversations were fast and furious. Everybody was so excited to talk about what we could do and how we could do it differently. And what would it look like if we did, you know, this, that, and the other. And I've never seen so much excitement in the contingent labor industry (laughs) too. I mean, there's only so much that you can do that's new. So it is really exciting to see us um, really making an impact in a bigger way. So talking about diversity and inclusion in the contingent workforce, so most organizations have focused on diversity and inclusion with their full-time employees, but likely haven't given this topic serious thought when it comes to their contingent workforce. So a question to both of you, why hasn't diversity and inclusion historically been a priority for contingent workforce programs? And this is actually a big part of the discussions that we have with clients when they do express the interest is that, frankly, there's a big co-employment risk. There's a lot of exposure and there's fear around if I do this wrong. And honestly, I think for a while too, I mean, if you even take it a step further, contingent labor wasn't always considered a part of your true labor strategy. I mean, it's really only until it became 30% of your workforce did people go, oh, wait, you know, we have to actually, let's think about our talent plan here. Because, you know, a lot of our talent is coming through non-traditional sources or at minimum non-FTE sources. And so I think there was all of a sudden a little bit more of a focus around looking at that particular category differently. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are a lot of areas of exposure. So even if an organization wants to do the right thing, in in driving better diversity practices within their contingent workforce, there's a lot of risk that you have to navigate. Doesn't mean you can't, just means you have to navigate it. And I think there's just a lot of unknown and there's fear around the unknown. So I I tend to see organizations sort of get paralyzed at that point where what we're trying to do is help them navigate, you know, what are the gotchas so that you can actually get to that point B in a way that protects you, but also allows you to and enables you to move the needle in this category. And Ash, I don't know if you have a different perspective, but that's been kind of from where I sit, the big issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. Co-employment's definitely a huge risk. Um, But I also think they really didn't think about it on some level, right? Because as Jen said, their contingent labor workforce percentage is very slow, very low. But if you look at today, there's three things that converge, right? For the last like 10 years or so, we've been training the hiring managers in corporate America as full-time to embrace diversity inclusion. So they're already trained on how to evaluate talent and Mm-hmm. and um, push the needle forward mm-hmm. on the full-time side, those same managers are interviewing our contingent labor, right? And so if we just got the pipeline to go the way we needed to, I guarantee that organically you're just going to start seeing the hiring happen, happen, right? And then the second thing was procurement and DNI and HR kind of all ran in different silos, right? And, but if you think about strategically, if my goal is to be 30% women in our organization, right? That's our ultimate goal. And we're ignoring 50% of our population. For example, like Google's workforce is 50% contingent labor at this point. Then the max I could ever get to holistically is 15% women in our organization because I'm ignoring a whole subset of population. And if I want to change a culture, secondly, I can't really change a culture if I'm ignoring half the people that are showing up at work. Right. And so I think those two things kind of converged. And then the thing that makes me most excited is that just corporate America themselves seem to be 
really pushing the moral fiber of society and we're doing some really good things around that. And so I think the fact that that's happening is sort of overcoming these barriers that we went through before that I think are now being thought of. And so it's kind of funny because even from a managing risk management standpoint, I think Dan and I have to slow them down a little bit because they want to move things so fast. They're like, wait, there's going to be some repercussions around how you do this. We have to be very mindful of how we're rolling this out. And I think that's the real, real value that the partnership has brought is that we're going to do this thoughtfully in a way that helps society, but also helps manage risk on, on the corporate side. As we talk about this, so what do you think are the key or most frequent barriers uh, to diversity and inclusion uh, adoption in the contingent workforce and, and how do we overcome them? I'd say the first thing is having a holistic strategy, right? So having your DNI group work with your HR group and your procurement group to create the actual overall goal, right? And have leadership buy into that. The second thing is partnering with the MSP and actually having them in part of the process of the planning to get those goals. And then let's figure out how to increase the pipeline. And some of that's through having the right suppliers in the mix, but it's also educating the managers within their organizations, right? Because it's one thing for you to bring the talent, but if they're not willing to hire them, then it's kind of a, a mixed bag, right? And so, and then the third thing is making sure that the environment's inclusive. And so I think some of that is building policies around that. So a quick example is if you wanted to bring more women in your organization, you have to have a little bit of flexibility, even if it's a time and materials type of person, to give them the ability to, to be the primary caregiver for their children and still not affect their productivity. Yeah. And you, and you talk about barriers too. We kind of, we mentioned co-employment, but just risk in general. But, you know, when you think about just the nature of, of this particular category of worker, you know, they actually are employees of a supplier through the MSP. So let's just say it's ABC Corporation. They have Tapfin as their MSP. It might be higher talent from Ash's organization that actually is the true supplier and, and employer of records. So they actually are the W-2 of that particular supplier. And so if that's the case, then it does impact your ability. There's, there's very little control that you truly have over, you know, operating as though they are your employee. And yet you still have them on likely working with all of your employees on the full-time side daily. So we think about, you know, things like exposure around what is your commitment to action on the data. So like, for example, if you say you want to grow your gender diversity, like Ash has been referencing, but you have no true commitment to action on that data, meaning if you want to capture people's placements in a certain category, um, if you're not going to use that for improving that particular segment of, of hiring, then you've failed. You know, you, you've actually exposed yourself to more risk and you've also not really done anything other than just capture some information. So we talk about data capture and trying to move the needle. And there's a lot of exposure around that just in from a co-employment perspective, but also just from a legal perspective across the board. Talking about data, the importance of data. So uh, Tapium built the MSP 3.0, which uh, significantly extends the DNI ROI. So uh, Jennifer, first of all, I wanted to ask you, what is Tapium's MSP 3.0, and what are the problems it is trying to solve? Yeah. So when you talk about MSP 3.0, that's a big, <laughs> that's a, it's a big concept, and for us. It's a couple of things, and diversity is one of them, but it's it's really like an omni-channel foundation for people to be able to source their talent through all different categories. But it's also a way that enables diversity and equity and inclusion strategies holistically, like we've been talking about. So it's bigger than just capturing spend. It, it certainly allows for you to have 
um, your supplier diversity spend capture goals uh, enabled, but it also allows for hiring manager training. It allows for employee training. It allows for conscious conversations that I can let Ash talk a little bit about that truly transform the way in which the, the organization's culture operates around inclusivity. It allows for full review of, you know, even how you're showing up in social media, if that's something that's of interest to you so that you truly are attracting the right talent. And it's, it's four things like kind of conceptually, it's, it's kind of four things. It's, you know, supporting the supply base that is, you know, enabling your workforce strategy. It's attracting the right talent, the talent that truly supports your diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. It's growing. So it's growing your talent and in certain categories. So if you are looking to grow your gender diversity or your ethnicity diversity within your organization, it's growing that. And then it's truly transforming the way that your culture operates so that you are a more inclusive culture. So for us, it's kind of, it's this holistic approach to driving talent in the right direction. So how can you actually measure diversity, inclusion and track, track this? We just had a conversation about this, Ash. <laughs> we can, happened. we can. There's that a lot of ifs, ands, and buts. That's why you have to call us. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I think there are, there are definitely some barriers. And one of the other things I'm really excited about working with you guys is that we're putting together a consortium of 50 or so procurement professionals, lawyers, and lawyers. And we're going to write a public policy document and hopefully change the, the laws to make it a little easier to, to measure this. But in the short term, our approach has been very intentful, right? And so I think if you think about diversity, and there's, there's sometimes this hesitation, like if I'm the white male, like where do I fit in this whole um, scenario? And the reality is diversity is not exclusive to anybody, right? And so and I think the thing that organizations have done in the past is they've measured at the macro level. And what that ends up happening is, let's say all your, you want to push the women minority to target, for example, right? And all your women are actually in the marketing group. And then all your engineers are Indian. And then all your finance people might be Asian. You essentially created three companies, countries inside your company, and you're not getting leverage of diversity, right? And so the idea is if you measure the micro level, then a white male is a minority in, in the engineering group, right? And so if we start doing that, we're really trying to get the diversity of thought, which actually increases competitive advantage for organizations, since that's one of the unique things that we're doing within this partnership. You also mentioned the, the diversity of thought as a key, something organizations should should keep in mind. The question is around how, do you, how can you measure it? Or what would be your advice on that from your side for organizations? Um, I mean, I do it in baby steps. I think the first thing is to make sure you're tracking the type of talent that actually is getting hired, right? And then number two is look at the people who didn't get hired. And if, if for example, it's a silver medalist, somebody who is a second choice, if you see that they weren't hired, but they were minority, then you can kind of push past that idea of that there's not talent out there, right? Because I think there's this idea that there's no diverse talent out there. I want to hire them. And I think it is there. We just, we just aren't looking at it properly. So I think those two are the first two steps. And the second, the third thing is when you're measuring make sure the data is secure and that only the people that should be seeing it are authorized to see it. Because I think that can be very dangerous if you're not doing it correctly. And that's For a defined period of time too. I mean, they always right. say too, it's like, you know, use the data and then move on. The leadership needs to make sure DNI is a priority for their business and they evangelize it. And then the second thing is once you build a plan, if you don't measure it, it doesn't happen. Right. And so I think you have to build metrics around it and manage your DNI goals like you would a business unit. I always say if 
I started a new business and I got 2% year over year growth, I'd probably get fired. <laughs> right. And so if you're looking to set realistic goals and your diversity goals, make sure it's multi-year, but also hold people accountable. And I think that's a big part of it. And then the last thing is like in the U S specifically is being nice is not a co-employment risk. And so I think if you in invite your workers to be more engaged, I think get more ROI out of it. And so I think it's important to set, set sort of policies that make sense that are risk management policies, but they don't tread to the point where you demotivate people from working and staying. So I think if you do, do those three things, you'll win the war on talent, right? Because I think ultimately the unemployment rate is going to drop back down to 4%. And what's going to win is the people who feel like they're being treated really well and they're being part of a mission. So I think those are the three or four things. Mm -hmm. For you, Jennifer, what are the top three benefits of including diversity in an end-to-end -end MSP? Sure. So, I mean, the big thing is, as we're talking about talent, I mean, ultimately, you're going to see better talent outcomes. And right now, especially Ash at the, at the uh, outset of our conversation was talking about this virtual work world that we live in. I mean, it, it's actually becoming harder and harder to find talent because you're competing with people across the globe now. I mean, it's no longer just competing in your market. You're now competing with everyone. And so it is harder to find talent. And it is critical that we look bigger, that we look at non-traditional sources, that we look at thinking differently about how we're hiring. You know, so for, for us, it's it's a talent strategy. So you get better talent outcomes because ultimately you're casting a broader net. Another one would be, you know, the whole concept of diversity of thought that drives better business results, period, full stop. I mean, so if you have people from different backgrounds and people from different ways of potentially um, thinking and being more creative and they feel enabled to speak their mind and be creative together, creativity drives better outcomes, period. And so you know, that part is really exciting to me. And we've always subscribed to that at Manpower Group, you know, that 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 is so critical. And I think you can only get better outcomes by having more and more diversity. And then I think the, the final thing would be, and, and Ash touched on this too, is better retention. You know, we talk about how difficult it is to get talent. You know, the figure is kind of generic, but, you know, typically costs about 25% more to try and go and hire somebody else than to just retain the people you've got. And so, you know, it is so important to keep the talent that you have and to keep them happy and to keep them engaged and to keep them feeling like this is the place that they want to be because you're going to get better work out of those people too. I mean, at the end of the day, it helps everything. So for me, it's so much bigger than just doing the right thing, which is ultimately the underscore. It's really about all of the different aspects that can drive ROI for your organization. Yeah, and I, I love I love the idea of what you mentioned with creativity. Is that yeah, you you don't go very far away if everyone thinks the same. So right. <laughs> absolutely. And if you think about, I mean, you asked about diversity of thought. If you think about just even what we did together, right? We had people from all different walks of life show up to to build this diversity solution, right? And what it's ultimately done is, is literally lifted the consciousness of the staffing industry. And now everyone is sort of trying to push to do this. And so I think it shows you an example of how you can change the world and also make it profitable. For the last bit, uh, we're doing a bit of a fire round. So it's the first <laughs> time we do it on the podcast. So very excited. <laughs> so we want to bust some myths. We are going to tell you a myth each, uh, and then we want some really nice and quick answers on, you know, why is that wrong? Why, why can we uh, bust it? So we can get started. So the first one for you, Ashish, diversity and inclusion are the same things. 
Diversity is a number, inclusion is your culture. Perfect start. <laughs> so Jennifer, diversity and inclusion is an HR issue. Absolutely not. And actually just what I just said, it's, it is, uh, it's a business issue. Ashish, inclusion is just about gender and race. No, I think humans are multidimensional and there are many differences and commonalities that might not be apparent at first glance. When we talk about inclusion, it means for everyone and encompasses age, ability, disability, neurodiversity, sexual orientation, gender, parental status, veteran status, formerly incarcerated, and mindset. So that's just a few things to give you an example. Mindset. I love that. So Jennifer, DEI is about hiring less qualified candidates and it could limit my talent pool. It's the opposite. It expands your talent pool. And Ashish, the concept of diversity excludes white men. We need all of us at the table. And that, of course, includes white men. White men aren't one homogeneous group, but they have various backgrounds, experiences, mindsets. And that's what the workforce needs. Right? So I think we have to invite everybody at the party and just expand the, the skill sets and talents that are out there. So, Jennifer, diversity is about meeting a quota. There is such a thing as enough diversity. Yeah, that one's that one's not good. <laughs> I mean, the reality is like so so diversity spend might be a quota, okay. But diversity is, I mean, even though I mean it is really about capturing multiple backgrounds in, in your workforce, it's still a way of being, it's a way of thought, it's a way of operating. There's no such thing as too much that doesn't even compute for me. I think the more you can focus on it, the better outcomes you'll have. Absolutely. And a last one to both of you. Give me one reason why D, E, and I are not just buzzwords. Uh, I would say your company won't be able to thrive if you ignore D and I. According to September 2020 Citibank Citigroup report, racism costs the US economy $16 trillion over 20 years, right? And if also wow. you can yeah. look at mental health in the workplace as well, which is also another diversity piece we didn't talk about. It costs organizations about $1 trillion a year in productivity because they're not addressing diversity and inclusion. Yeah, and you, Jennifer? I don't know how I followed that, but I would just say, you know, for me, <laughs> I think um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a way of being. And I think it's our new way of being. And thank goodness that we got to this place and um, where people are focused on it. I think it will just continue to become a part of who we are in the world, hopefully. I love this round. Uh, I think we should do it next time, but um, yeah, yeah, so, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. So before saying goodbye, I just wanted to summarize our conversation. So DE and I stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. We also heard very interesting stats about eight billion dollars are being spent for DNI training in the US, which is which is a lot. There are also a couple of things for overcoming most frequent barriers for DEI, and it is holistic strategy, partnering with MSP, and having right suppliers. And then top benefits of including diversity in end-to-end -end MSP are looking at the bigger talent pool, diversity of thought mm -hmm. is driving better business results and better retention. Yeah, and I would also add, and I actually I really like, Ashish, you mentioned quite a lot, the, the importance of education and educating the teams, the, the management. And yeah, it's absolutely, you know, it starts with learning, you know, knowing also how to how to be with your team members and then eventually how to, how to recruit. So I think that was a very big uh, takeaway for me. I did want to add one more thought, because um, people always ask me, like, what can we do as MSPs and staffing agencies to sort of push this forward, right? And I always say, we actually have a special place because we're at the front line of talent, right? And so 
we can influence diversity and inclusion in a way that I don't think many organizations can at the scale we can do it, you know? And so I think number one is find your own niche and own it. If you copy, it won't resonate as effectively, right? And I, I think that's what we tend to do in our in the staffing industry specifically. So like this diversity MSP solution that we came up with Tapfin resonates because the passion comes out, right? And copying Tapfin's diversity solution won't help you help your agency because if it's not a core passion, it won't resonate. So I think as a solution for the industry, to be part of the solution, I think it's important that we connect personally to whatever cause we're trying to push and that'll become contagious. And so I'd say, let's not make it a crowded field of copycats, but an ecosystem of change that collaborates to raise the consciousness of society. And that's what the power we have as MSPs and agencies. Yeah, that, that's perfect. The, the perfect conclusion. Well, I love I loved this episode. It was really interesting. and I did learn a lot. So hopefully our listeners uh, did the same. So thank you so much for joining us today on the 10th episode of the Transform Talent podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And to all our listeners, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review in your favorite podcast listening app. See you on the next episode and bye for now. Bye-bye. The Transform Talent Podcast, because we know the right talent transforms organizations and helps your business flourish. Talent solutions, business and talent aligned.